0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Everything in the end comes down to Exodus. Everything that we are as a civilization goes back to Exodus. Every person, religious or not, who wants to consider him or herself educated needs to engage with Exodus. And fortunately for us, the noted academic Leon Cass has provided us with that unique thing, a book that is both magisterial and readable. We will discuss with him his 2021 work, Founding God's Nation, reading Exodus. Cass examines Exodus in meticulous detail. We learn, among other things, that Exodus is a story of how all human beings can rise from the depths of despair and oppression, and how one group in particular formed a society that has influenced many others down to this day, in everything from compassion for the downtrodden, to mean treatment of animals, to wise stewardship of the land. Not to mention the fact that our foundational laws and traditional family and current government structures derived from events narrated in Exodus. Cass writes, I undertook this study mainly to explore basic questions of people formation. What makes a people a people? What forms their communal identity, holds them together, guides their lives? For what should they strive? Exodus speaks to these questions through two unfolding, intersecting stories, the founding of the Israelite nation via deliverance and command, and the growing knowledge of God via divine revelation. This is a perfect treatise for general readers that are, that are, are as relevant on questions that are as relevant as ever. What is justice? What do we want our nation to be? What is my personal responsibility to others? The book also brims with drama. We are dealing here, after all, with Moses and mountaintops, Pharaoh and plagues, God's love and human faith, faithlessness. For those not really raised in religious households, this book is a gateway to understanding those who were and enriches us culturally. We will focus primarily in this interview with Dr. Cass. he is also a physician and one of the leading bioethicists of our time, on the role that the Sabbath plays in Exodus and in our own lives. His treatment of that subject alone demands attention. Give a listen. Hello everyone, my name is Hope G. Lehman and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Leon Cass, author of the 2021 book Founding God's Nation, Reading Exodus. Thank you for joining us today, Leon.
0: Good to be with you, Hope. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for coming. I'm very honored. I'd like to start off by dis- by saying deciding what to focus on in this interview was not an easy task. There is so much in your book to choose from as topics, from the life story of Moses to your fascinating explanation of why the long and, to many readers, tediously de- detailed sections of Exodus on the construction of the tabernacle need to be understood as a crucial part of the story. But for the purposes of this interview, I'd like to zero in on the role that the Sabbath plays in Exodus and its role in forming many of the concepts that carried over into Western civilization in general. You write in the book this, Of all the statements in the Decalogue, the one regarding the Sabbath is the most far-reaching and the most significant. It addresses the profound matters of time and its reckoning, work and rest, and man's relation to God, the world, and his fellow men. Most important, this is the only injunction that speaks explicitly of hallowing and holiness, the special goal for Israel and the covenant being proposed. Now, as a reader, I found it somewhat surprising that you singled out the injunction about the Sabbath as the most far-reaching and significant, given that the Decalogue includes the commandments, no other gods before me, and thou shalt not murder. Is your position on the paramountcy of the Sabbath the majority view or a minority one?
0: Well, I don't know or where it is or minority, or minority, but I was struck in reading the the Decalogue, that there are really only two commandments put in the positive. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make graven images. You shall not take my name in vain. No murder, adultery, theft, false witness, or coveting. But in the midst are two positive commandments. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and you shall honor your father and mother that your days shall be long on the earth that the Lord God has given you. And, um, I, and then you think about it and you see that both of these two commandments are really innovations in the law of the ancient Near East. Other peoples had laws about murder and theft and adultery, uh, but this nation uh, was first really to introduce this reckoning of time and this injunction to sanctify a particular day of the week and also the first nation to teach equally the injunction to honor father and mother. Um, And uh, studying it more, uh, when you come to the discussion of holiness and the invitation to the Israelites to be a holy people as the Lord their God is holy, it turns out that Sabbath observance uh, and uh, honoring father and mother appear there as the two linchpin things. So, I don't know what the majority view is, but if you sort of submit to the text, you can't help but be struck with the preeminence of Sabbath observance. And it crops up over and over and over again as being absolutely essential to the existence and well-being of this people as a separate people.
1: Yes, you, you, uh, uh, apropos of the, the creation, the, the, it's tied to the very beginning of the people. You, you tie it quite closely to the creation story. Could you expl- explain the connection between them?
0: Well, um, I, I think this is straight from the text. I mean, readers of Genesis will learn on the first page uh, the seven-day creation story, six days God created the world and all the things in it, but the creation was completed by a seventh day on which God ceased from working and set aside and hallowed this seventh day beyond the workings of creation, but as integral to the whole that was created. The reader of Genesis learns this on the first page, but no one in the story is ever told about the Sabbath day or the reason for it. And maybe uh, I should say something Uh, also about that creation story. One of the main purposes of the creation story, the first chapter of Genesis, is to um, undermine the natural belief in the superiority, indeed the divinity, of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. People everywhere looked up to these beautiful and uh, perfectly moving beings in the heavens Uh, They are the source of light and warmth and uh, the gift uh, crucial to to to, to the growth uh, of our nourishment. And these are worshipped everywhere as divine. But the opening chapter of Genesis quietly polemicizes against that widely, not to say universal, teaching and suggests that the sun and the moon and the stars, they're not gods. They're just creatures and they're not even created first. In fact, you get light. Without the sun, you get vegetation without the sun. You get day and night without the sun. But no one in the story knows anything about the creation story until Sinai, when the children of Israel in the Ten Commandments are told, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will work, etc. The seventh day is a holy day unto the Lord. And the reason given, the reason given is the, the the it was in 6 days that god created the earth but on the 7th day he he rested on the 7th day and he blessed the 7th day and made it holy for the first time in human history according to this story human beings are told of the creation and they are invited to remember the creation not to work all the time as the slaves did in Egypt, but to recreate the rhythm of their time according not to the phases of the moon, but according to this creation story in which something beyond the heavens created it and with a special relation to human beings who alone among the creatures are in the image of God.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that uh, it was at Sinai that they they first got the I guess if I would say maybe the official story or the the, the official version. But in your book, you also make the point that there are certain hints at the Sabbath, for example, in the Song of the Sea and in the story of the gathering of manna, which is that seems to be an there are sort of indications in the song, which you say is composed by Moses and also. God's injunction in the the gathering of the manna that you shall they the, he's, they tell he's he tells them you must not gather it you must not go out on the seventh day and some of them do could you talk about those two instances or kind of prequels to the, the the official version if that's possible um, I'm
0: I'm um, I'm drawing a blank on the place of the Sabbath and the, of the sea um, but certainly in the story of the manna where the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They're now in the desert, and they're restless. They're restless over the necessities of life. No water, no food, and then again, no water. And God actually takes advantage of their restlessness over food in order, even before they complain, to decide to send them manna from heaven on a daily basis. Um, But he adds a particular injunction because he's not only going to feed them, but he's going to test them to see if they will keep his law and his way. And you're not supposed to take more than you need. You're not supposed to store overnight or let it be spoiled, but also you're only supposed to gather six days because the seventh day is not a day for gathering or working or cooking or anything like that, but there will be a double portion provided on the sixth. And it, when he tells them this story, um, It's sort of mystifying. What would the children of Israel think of as the seventh day? Um, This is not anything in their experience in Egypt, where toil was every day of the week. And uh, they, in fact, bought their food at the price of their freedom. All their work was for Pharaoh to build store cities. And um, this was a society in which one man ruled as a god and everyone else served. Um, Here, they're shown in the desert that um, the world is bountiful, Uh, and with the teaching of the Sabbath day, they're taught that, you know, not every day is like every other, and you don't have to hoard against tomorrow, because the Lord is a good provider, and there will be enough from everybody. You don't have to be in competition with your neighbor, and everybody will have exactly enough to meet their needs. In addition, uh, as a kind of way of inviting them to step out of the scrambling for necessity, to have a day apart, a day that is set aside for the Lord, in which the dominant feeling is a feeling of appreciation and gratitude for the beneficence and the bounty of the world. Uh, This is a kind of using food as a kind of lesson to show that there's something beyond Scrambling for necessity and begins to turn them toward God. But the reason for doing this is not given them until the Ten Commandments.
1: Yeah, you also make the point that the gift of manna has, you're right, the gift of manna also has political significance. It returns the Israelites to a gathering society, pre agricultural and egalitarian, not unlike the bountiful Garden of Eden. Before the division of labor, before property, and before the emergence of inequality, so could you discuss the political implications of it as well? You mentioned you were talking about the the, the belief in religious faith, but how does it? Because your book is the founding, the founding is is political as well. So,
0: yeah, no, I think uh, I think that um, as you say, it, it in Egypt um, there was constant toil and inequality. Here, um, everybody's needs are equally met, so you don't have to, you, you cannot hoard and you cannot acquire more than your neighbor, and you have no need to do so because the world is bountiful. The teaching of the world is not scarcity and hence rivalry, but a beginning recognition that the needs of each person are equally worthy and God looks after everybody. Um, Before there's division of labor, before there's property, before there's inequality, you have a community that's founded on uh, a recognition of the equal worth of every human being. It acknowledges the necessity of meeting necessity, but it doesn't give the economics of life pride of place. They have a teaching about the Sabbath before they have their own economy and before they would have a kind of pride in their accomplishments to bring forth food from
1: the earth. Yeah, and well, you when mentioned... What, you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Please. Well, I was just going to say, you mentioned the benefits, uh, the, 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 the equality and fairness, and you mentioned that in the book that it's not only the children of Israel but their, and their servants, but all of the servants, be, be they children of Israel or not, and also to in many instances strangers. So the Sabbath is is supposed to encompass a large number of people. Could you discuss uh, again the 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 egalitarian aspects of it? Yeah, no, that uh, that comes up not in the
0: discussion of manna, but that comes up in the teaching of the Sabbath itself, where the question is who actually is going to get to rest? Just the lord of the household and his wife? No. You, your son, your daughter, your servant, your maidservant, your cattle, and even your, your stranger that is within your gates. Whatever the distinctions of hierarchy, of uh, inequality, of rank in the household, on the Sabbath day, all those distinctions are leveled. And uh, every creature is, in a way, not only invited, but enjoined to, to participate in this sanctified time in which um, uh, all, all of the uh, conventional distinctions of human societies are set aside, and everybody is reminded by not only remembering the creation, but somehow imitating God in that created order. The children of Israel and everything in their household— I mean, the beasts don't know that they're celebrating the Sabbath, but everything in the household is in a way invited to be like God. Um, it's, it's stunning. Um, and it, this is another way in, in, in which uh, whatever the distinctions there are, you must remember that we are all equal in relation to God and equally dependent on God for the creation equally grateful for our existence in a world that provides for our needs and um, not somehow given over to the passions that would enslave us and make political life difficult, whether it's fear and despair or pride in the belief in our uh, superiority, all of that gets leveled out in this kind of setting apart of sacred time. Um, the other thing that's really very striking: all kinds of people have sacred places and sacred images and 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 sacred creatures, but what is sacred in Israel becomes the time of your life, and that's also an absolutely stunning teaching. Um, what you're told, you're, the injunction is remember the Sabbath day to keep and keep it holy. You're remembering it, you keep it holy on the seventh day, but in a certain way you're remembering it all week. And the week points to the seventh day as if, um, yes, we're supposed to work and we're supposed to be in a way partners with God in f- completing the creation through our labor. But all of it points towards something which is beyond acquisition, beyond meeting necessity, beyond just building, to something like gratitude, appreciation, elevated dignity, Godlike, uh, time out of time. Um, and uh, this also produces a kind of politics in which the dignity of every creature in relation to this conception of time and this conception to the source of everything uh, really does produce a sense of human dignity, not just equality, but elevated equality, dignity and um, God-likeness, if you will.
1: Well, what's interesting to me in the book about, you talk about the, 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 the word Sabbath, I believe means refresh or rest. And what what I thought was interesting was that so many um, in Protestantism, certain of the most hard-driving, work ethic, industriousness-minded um, branches of Protestantism, are also the ones that believe in the Sabbath. Most particularly, I mean, the English, the English Puritans, for example, or the early Methodists. They were very keen on the Sabbath, but they're also very, very driven the rest of the week. So it's interesting that that they seem to. That they needed rest, but they had to sort of justify it in a worldly way. So, um, well, I, I wonder, could you? Oh, go ahead.
0: Well, please, uh, I, I, um, I mean, the 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 injunction about Sabbath rest um, is uh, is it's mainly about the Sabbath because the Sabbath is an Israelite innovation. Let me let me gloss that a little bit. Um, the Israelites might have known before they heard of the manna and the seventh day of rest, and be- certainly before they heard of the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath teaching, the explicit Sabbath teaching and the reason for it. But the ancient Near East had its own Sabbath days, especially among the Mesopotamians. They had a day called shabbatu It was the 14th day of the month, the day of the full moon, and the Babylonians also reckoned the calendar in seven-day cycles, but these were tied to the phases of the moon. Uh, sometimes you needed an extra day to get to the 29th and a quarter of the lunar cycle. But the 14th day of the month was Shabbat two. And rather than being a day of joy and benison, it was a day of superstition and dread. And you did nothing important on the night of the moon is full uh, our English language still has a kind of vestige of this fear of the full moon. Our English word lunatic goes back to a time that people thought, you know, on the day of the full moon, people go out of their minds. Uh, so here the, the, the reckoning your time by the moon and being afraid of the things in the heavens are set aside in favor of a hopeful view, a hopeful view of, uh, of, of time because the time is related to what God's doing rather than to the silent and ever-recurring motions of these dumb heavenly bodies. Um, So, um, yeah, this is a kind of reconfiguration of what it means to live in the world, not somehow as subject to the eternal cycle of these dumb heavenly bodies, but with a mission in the world to bring a kind of new way for human life into the world that would be a way of righteousness and dignity and holiness and sabbath observance is absolutely crucial to transforming the way you think about what it means to be alive on the earth and the puritans the puritans were deep students of the hebrew bible and the idea of covenant is captured in the mayflower compact our first bible. Right, and 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 similarly, Sabbath observance and various other things, the Puritans simply took over.
1: Well, I was going to say apropos of the the, the gentle the gentle aspects and the restful aspects of the Sabbath, you also address very powerfully and straightforwardly in the book uh, something that I found as a non-religious person with very little background in religion that the fact that in part of the Discussion or the the edict about my God about the Sabbath is that the penalty at one point in Exodus for uh, non observant of the Sabbath is death. So could you discuss that? You discuss that in the book, and you and you make the point that um, it's important to put yourself in the mindset of the people of the time. And I think that's a very effective way. It seems to to me that seemed very shocking. But then you say. It was how they preserved the society that was under threat at all corners, and a way preserving the the civilization they were building. Could you talk about the the death aspect of it, and and the, and, and the fact that the, the the rabbis through centuries explained what that meant? It was not literal, and so forth.
0: Yeah, look, this is quite shocking. Um, and let me just quote the passage: "You shall keep this. This is in the discussion of the building of the tabernacle and." Even the building of God's holy place, where he's going to abide among the people, they have to leave off the building in order to keep the Sabbath. The sacred time is holier than sacred space. But here's the text. You shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever does any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. If you didn't get it the first time, three times. Uh, And uh, one has to, I'll put something down and I'll repair to it. This comes right after the introduction to the teaching after he's given all the instructions for the tabernacle. And then he tells Moses, you, you've got to teach the children of Israel about keeping the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Why? To know that it is I, the Lord, I, Jehovah, who sanctifies you. The Sabbath is, in a way, the marital bond of this relation. This is the sign of this uh, covenantal bond and the crucial sign of the people's sanctification. So it's after that that the death penalty for desecration of the Sabbath is introduced. And uh, it's totally unacceptable to any modern person, uh, You know, we we cheat if we try to say, well, the rabbis were shocked too. And the rabbis, uh, this is the the Judaism for 2000 years uh, since uh, after the Babylonian conquest and dispersion. Uh, But um, we should try to think hard, not only by putting ourselves in their place, hope, as you suggested, but let's try to figure out on the basis of the severity of the punishment what's the big deal such that you would treat you would treat sabbath violation on a par with premeditated murder kidnapping with an intent to sell into slavery striking or cursing your father and mother and lying with animals these are the previous capital offenses that the reader of exodus having gotten to this point will have had to swallow and the question is can you see how the profanation of the Holy Sabbath might be put into the same category of offenses? Uh, this is, by the way, not to endorse the practice of killing people who drive their car on the Sabbath or gather wood or go shopping. Uh, but it, it, you, if, you, if you read sympathetically, you're going to try to find out something about a culture of what do they understand as higher than life itself itself. And what are they willing to destroy a life in order to uphold? And it was that, that's what I tried to do in these couple of paragraphs. And I say at the end, uh, if I haven't succeeded in making the case, I invite the readers to improve on it and let me know. But it does seem to me that, um, that uh, the invitation, the distinctive principles of keeping the Sabbath and honoring your father and mother are foundational for this people. And that um, the the Sabbath is even more important than the tabernacle because the God-given seven-day rhythm of life inheres in the world, endures forever, as long as we remember to keep it. And it stands as the eternal sign of the covenantal relation between each Israelite and all of Israel in the Lord. So to willfully violate the Sabbath really means rejecting this covenantal connection. It's in a way, and I, I, I stretched it by saying, it's it's in a way a renunciation of the covenant, a betrayal of a, quote, marriage. And I, I really went overboard, a kind of act of patricide against God. Now, I, I don't want to stand by that, but if you, if you follow this line of reasoning, you can see they really took this seriously. And i add only one thing, culturally and historically speaking. Uh, a famous Jewish thinker said, it's not that the Jewish people kept the Sabbath. The Sabbath is what kept the Jewish people. And uh, it has played that kind of, of foundational role. It's the it's the rhythm of time with an eye on sanctification, which is the guiding motif in the calendar. And uh, certainly for those of us who've lived under COVID, where every day is like every other day and you don't know what day of the week it is or what month of the year it is. And time runs together um, and everything is as significant as everything else. And um, for those people who have to work, toil is all the time under bad circumstances. You begin to see the degradation of life when there isn't some kind of standing apart, some kind of invitation to elevation, some kind of invitation to do more than grab and and provide, but to celebrate in joy and appreciation and, and simple gratitude.
1: Well, given, given that you've just introduced the, reintroduced the topic of political um, politics plus the, the COVID situation, the pandemic, I'd like to ask about both of those issues tied together and the Sabbath, that given the recent debates about inequality and the rise of income disparities and increased racial tensions, and this has all coincided with the decline in religious affiliation and attendance, do you think that a new emphasis on Sabbath observance is called for? And do you think that there will be or is there has there been a rise or do you think there will be a rise in sabbath observance now that that people have been that religious public authorities have banned public gatherings in churches and are people pushing back and are they realizing the importance to their own spiritual needs and political needs to have a, a sabbath observance becoming to to maintain and re, revivify it and also i'd like to ask too in, in that in the, in the connection to that do you think that that it's becoming more home centered, that people, that the Sabbath is becoming less communal in general because people are celebrating it at home. And is that likely to continue? And it'll be less co- co- less of a communal activity than a than a personal spiritual growth activity.
0: Well, the, the sociological and political cultural question is a it's an empirical question, and it's not it's not my field or expertise. I'm very interested in this. And quite apart from recent times, I've been sort of disappointed over the course of my life to see how the American holy days, the our holidays have been um, sort of corrupted into um, uh, George Washington mattress Day sale days and, um, in which we we no longer use the calendar, the the American, if I may be allowed to call it our own liturgical calendar, which is with its rhythm of gratitude for people who gave their lives on Memorial Day and the celebration of independence to Thanksgiving as a day of gratitude for our dependents, and to celebrating uh, our workers and to celebrating um, uh, immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, and veterans. And we've in a way lost the spiritual significance of the calendar in which Three-day weekends um, and uh, and time time is no longer rhythmed for us, and we lose something of the sense of the significance of our common life in having sacrificed that. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there are lots of people who have suffered by the restrictions on communal worship, uh, as if people need um, uh, um, amusement. And other sorts of and 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 shopping, more than they need to gather communally and in 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 support of each other in difficult times, and in giving voice to the desire to be in touch with something higher than themselves. Uh, I know the community in which I worship in Washington has been meeting outdoors in a parking lot through the winter. It's been over a year. Um, it's been valiant, but one misses the sense of fellow congregants and and worshipers, even though people still gather together to support people in times of difficulty. And that kind of communal sense is really uh, not the least important part of what such kind of group worship does. The Sabbath has always been, in part, a familial thing. You don't have to, it's one of the nice things. In the original injunction, you, your son, your daughter, etc., You don't have to go any place in order to sanctify the time, you can do it where you are. Uh, Eventually they build a temple, they have uh, communal worship, but the essence of it is family by family in every place, you remember the call to the sanctification of life and the sanctification of time. But I think, um, look, I think, and this is a very complicated and difficult thing, and it's not really my field, but I do, that, I do think that a lot of what we are seeing in the country at large is that there is an unacknowledged spiritual hunger. People don't even know they have a hunger, but we've discovered that our latest gadgets are prosperity our amusements, all of these things that were promised if we could only overcome the necessity, the toil that was necessary to meet life's necessities uh, and so on, that we would all be cheerful and happy. And it turns out that material prosperity and technological sophistication and automobility and all of our gadgets and FaceTime and all of that they haven't satisfied our restlessness or our longings of the soul a lot of people today have turned to politics or to other sorts of things that are going to, they think are going to feed what the soul is longing for and it cannot do so it cannot do so and when they, and the more we discover that it can't do so the angrier we get about the failure of politics to bring the cure for the soul's restlessness there's something and this i learned i wasn't brought up religious but i learned this from thinking about the question i understand why you need a national narrative of of, deli- of slavery and deliverance every nation in order has to know where it came from and what its roots are I understand why you need law and morality of the sort given at Sinai, but why are 13 chapters of Exodus given to building the tabernacle first in boring detail instructions, and then after this episode of the golden calf, the execution of the construction again, word for word, according to the details. And simply by dwelling with the text, by the way, this has been the product of 20 years of reading with students and family and friends. And I, I I learned something from this. I submitted to the book and allowed it to teach me rather than look just for agreement with what I already knew. But I came to see that the tabernacle is not just a concession to human weakness. Human beings need to bring sacrifices, etc., But it an answered to the human longing to have some kind of relationship in community, and in their daily life with that which they intuit is higher than we are and is somehow the source of all things. And it turns out, according to the text, that the tabernacle is also necessary for God to be known and to have a place in the lives of his creature, because in the absence of that, there's something missing in his own fullness of being. So um, I I think that uh, there's something anthropologically very deep in Exodus in its understanding that if you don't give the people some place to fulfill their aspirations for something higher, they're going to fill that void with something else. And they are going to be idolaters, if not worshiping of statues, but they're going to be idolaters of money or of uh, computer screens, uh, or of political parties, and it's not gonna satisfy them. The the Bible gives you a perfect example. When Moses is gone on the mountaintop and the people think they've lost all connection with God, who will lead us now that Moses is gone? They insist on producing some other kind of, of, of image, some other kind of deity can go before them and inspire them. And uh, we can blame them for their weakness right after their deliverance and being given the law, but they're expressing a human, all too human need for something that would be in touch with what's highest. And I think the culture has lost its way on this. Whether there can be a return to this, whether people recognize what it is that their soul is hungering for, that's a long question. But um, I I think it's uh, certainly in the beginning of America, when Alexis de Tocqueville comes to America in the 1830s, what astonishes him is that in America, the spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion are both strong, both alive and well without being enemies of each other. And each one understands that it needs the other. I'm not sure that the present America understands the deep connection between the spirit of religion and the flourishing of a self-governing people the way the book of Exodus, the Puritans, and even Americans into my childhood understood.
1: At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Leon Cass about his 2021 book, Founding God's Nation, Reading Exodus. And you spoke of your childhood just now. I'd like to ask you, you were... In your book, you, or I, I guess in interviews, you mentioned that you were raised in a, a, a very secular Jewish household. Where when did you first become aware in your own life of the Sabbath? Did you have friends that were Orthodox Jews that that you couldn't play with on the Sabbath? That you were you ever frustrated by the Sabbath as a secular Jew in your childhood? Or well,
0: I, I uh, I'm a first generation American. My parents came from dirt poverty. My father from the Ukraine. My mother from a place that was disputed between the Ukraine and Poland, um, we were Yiddish speaking uh, at home. Um, I went to, to a Yiddish school after school two days a week and Sundays. I learned the language. I learned the culture. I was not bar mitzvah I was never in the synagogue. But on the Jewish holidays, I mean, my grandfather was observant and um, my parents made me stay home on the Jewish holidays out of respect so that I shouldn't be out there uh, sort of treating these holidays of my fellow co-religionists with contempt. So I have a reverent soul. I mean, I, I have that, I have a reverent soul for age and for older things and for duty and obligation and so on. But it wasn't until our eldest child was born, by the way, on Christmas day, in 1966, my friend, and I'm beginning to think what kind of education I can't give my children, my wife and I can't give my children the education that either of us had. And she didn't have a religious education either. And my closest friend said to me, look, why don't you go to the Hillel Foundation? This is the Jewish center on campus in Cambridge. He says, go, come with me. We'll go to Saturday morning service. Um, uh, They'll read from the Torah, from the Bible. Someone will say something interesting about it. You like discussions of books, you might learn something. And so I said, What did I have to lose? I went with him. And sure enough, in the middle, I didn't I would I couldn't I didn't know up from down about the service. But in the middle of the service, they take out the Torah scrolls, they read from the Torah in Hebrew, and then the rabbi got up and gave a commentary on what had just been read. It turned out um, by dumb luck that The portion read that week and and the Jews read the entire Pentateuch, the entire five books of Moses in weekly portions throughout the entire year and start over again cyclically year after year after year. The weekly portion in this February was the portion in which God gives Moses the detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. And I remember as if it were yesterday, this is January February 1967, And I'm sitting there saying to myself, like a wise guy, let's see somebody make something interesting out of this. (laughs) And sure enough, the rabbi got up and he said, why is there this long, detailed discussion of the instructions for building the tabernacle? And why two portions from now will there be the account of the building according to these instructions verbatim? And if you look carefully, what's in between these two things? Well, what's in between them is the building of the golden calf and the orgiastic celebration that takes place around it. And the rabbi suggested that the tabernacle is, in fact, the place to house, cabin, restrain under careful rule, under measure and precision and law, the human impulse to sacrifice, the human impulse to atone, the human impulse to express gratitude, to let those more ecstatic passions find expression. Um, and I remember thinking at that time, boy, if somebody can make something like that out of this, let's see what the rest has. And uh, about six months later, my wife and I decided we should, we moved to Bethesda. Uh, I went to NIH and we decided we should join a congregation. and we should have our children be something rather than nothing, and if they didn't like it when they grew up, they could change it. Um, And by that time, I'd figured out that the something that was mine was nothing to be embarrassed about. Um, And my interest in this has grown, Uh, my practice is still lacking, but I come more and more to see the beauty and the wisdom of this teaching. And Uh, I find myself, by the way, uh, your readers, your listeners may be interested, but we're speaking with you in the West, and I'm in Jerusalem where I've just come to do some, I have family, my daughter and grandchildren are here, and I'm doing some work at a four-year liberal arts college here in Jerusalem, but um, to witness Sabbath observance in Jerusalem is something absolutely stunning. Um, Friday morning, it will be tomorrow morning. Everybody is on the street in anticipation and preparation for the Sabbath Eve and for the Sabbath day. The looks on the faces are not the looks of burdened people with their chores, but with a kind of anticipation and eagerness to welcome the Queen Sabbath. That's the uh, a psalm that's sung in the synagogue on Friday night. Uh, to to welcome the Sabbath Queen, and there's a kind of anticipation and peace in the air. and on the Sabbath day, it's not as much as it used to be. there are almost no cars. but in the neighborhood I live with, you walk in the street and you forget the workaday world and there's a kind of spiritual uplift. Uh, it's hard to explain, but it's um, in keeping with the whole rhythm of life. Tel Aviv is a different place, other places are different. But um it's quite an experience
1: for me. Well, I was just gonna say your your book you, you it's meticulous in describing of, of the of the tabernacle, the construction of it and the regalia of the priests. And I wanna encourage people after they've read those sections or as or in in as they read them, take a time out to, to just Google re, replica you could Google phrases such as replica of the tabernacle, because there's some fascinating videos online that show what a beautiful building it was and and the the gorgeous elegance. And it's interesting because I, you make the point that it was a place of mystery and rest within the tabernacle. And I, 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 the the phrase to me that came up was ornate intimacy because it's the priests are are clothed in this royal um, panoply of lovely jewels and gold and so forth. And, but it's also a place where you're humbled. And it's kind of an interesting paradox of the fact that it's, 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 it's being humble, but also in the presence of elegance and beauty. And I, I just, I wonder, have you ever, have you yourself ever been in a replica tabernacle? Or, or are they common in Israel? I think they're a little more like a museum there, but.
0: There are some in the museum and there are, there are, there are lots of pictures and so on. Uh, it's, look, it's, the tabernacle turns out to be a home not only for the wilder passions, um, what the Greeks called Dionysus, the desire to merge and to merge with sacrifices and blood and so on. But the tabernacle, as you point out, is also a place for the Apollonian side, the side that loves beauty and order and grace and harmony and and, and, and rhythm. And um, although there's an injunction against making images of the divine, the image makers get their final, they finally get a home as builders of the tabernacle. But when the building is built, the bottom cornerstone doesn't say Frank Lloyd Wright or I am Pei, but it says the Lord God of Israel, so to speak, as the architect and even the furniture designer of this place. But I think um, there's something else that's really quite stunning about this. Um, The tabernacle is a cooperative building project analogous to noah's ark god gave the instructions to noah to build the ark and to take a saving remnant to start the world anew after the earth had descended into violence and the lord repenteth of his creation Um, we've had other building projects in the bible the tower of babel the city and tower of babel in which the human builders decide that they're going to build a city and a tower with its top in heaven, as they are in a way way, become gods to the human race. We have the building projects of Pharaoh, the store cities in which the slaves accumulate and accumulate for Pharaoh's uh, growing wealth. Um, We have the building of the golden calf. But in the beginning, we have a building project of God alone, which is the building of the universe, the creation of heaven and earth. That, too, is work. In the beginning of the story of creation, it's said that God, the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And that was the beginning of creation. The next time and only other time you hear about the spirit of God is when God breathes the spirit of God into the artisans who make the tabernacle. And the tabernacle becomes a place where the God who created heaven and earth and made man in his image is finally to be known by his creature in a project that they jointly create so that he might dwell in their midst and be known by them. In a way, the tabernacle becomes a human divine joint project that really completes the project of creation in the beginning. It's it's an unbelievable account, uh, and one should really think this through as an anthropological and cultural and moral project, even if one has no intention of submitting to the obligations.
1: Well, one aspect I wanted to to you mention about the the construction and the and the the connection between God and the, and the tabernacle. And you make the fascinating point that whereas God concludes his plan for the tabernacle with renewed instruction about Sabbath keeping, he concludes with the Sabbath. Moses opens with it. When Moses is instructing the artisans and the people or the people in particular, he starts with the Sabbath. So it's, it's a nice, it's a nice construction of, of one leading to the other.
0: No, that's, that's really very nice. And um, if you, if you didn't get it the first time, uh, the, the Sabbath teaching gets referred to over and over again, and like so many things in the Bible, including, by the way, uh, the idea or, or or character of God himself, and I'll say something about it in a minute, but um, things get repeated and things are added to it. It's not as if a concept or an idea or, or a teaching is introduced uh, fully grown the first time. We learned about the Sabbath for the first time somehow with the manna, then in the Ten Commandments, then about the rest in the building, et cetera, et cetera. Much later, that it becomes a, 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 a capital offense to violate it and so on. Um, each time, and, and finally, when Moses in Deuteronomy repeats uh, the Sabbath teaching, he changes what's said in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and refers to the creation. Moses says, guard the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the reason given is because the Lord God brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. A political reason is given for Sabbath observance there. A cosmological reason is given in the first place. And the reader is then invited to think, what's the relation between the cosmological reason and the political reason? Could it be that if you have a people that doesn't know about the creator, that you might actually descend into a kind of politics that could degenerate into servitude, one man lording it over others and ruling them as if he were God? In other words, there's a kind of unfolding teaching about everything. Similarly, about the character called God, um, we who come to the book sophisticated We sort of think we know a lot about God and we import our own notions. But if you read this book in a wisdom-seeking spirit and you don't admit anything into your knowledge that hasn't already appeared in the text, it turns out that in the course of Exodus, you discover that um, God uh, cares for his people. He keeps his promises. He punishes the Egyptians. Oh, then he provides manna. Oh, then he's a lawgiver. Oh, um, he—he's uh, uh, a furniture maker, and then you learn for his partial revelation, re- architect and furniture maker, and then in the partial revelation to Moses after the sin of the golden calf, you learn one of the most important things any people needs to know—that the highest principle of all, that's demanded the most demanding way of life, is a God capable of forgiveness. The Israelites have committed the biggest apostasy, the biggest. They violated the core of the covenant, not to worship other gods before him. And the question is, will he destroy them as he said he would? Or does he yield when Moses becomes their lawyer and pleads successfully six times, a little bit at a time to get him to return to them and join them? The reader, along with Moses, has learned an awful lot about who this character in the text called God is and why such a creature might be more worthy of reverence than the God who simply smites his enemies or the God who who claims to be a God, but he's only a human being or various kinds of animal figures who stand for natural potency like the frog stands for fertility or the bull for male virility
1: well one one mo- very moving passage in your book and that's in some ways it's it's one of the pon- penultimate moments in it is that you make the point that it's, it's it's it is at that moment when moses is pleading for the people on in the up of, after their colossal transgression of the golden calf which which you also say is really better translated as bull, which makes it even more orgaz than it than a calf, because it sounds rather sweet and benign. But a bull is is a is a more formidable figure. But you say that at that moment, that Moses suddenly, for the first time, really identifies with the people of Israel and speaks as we as as he as a child of Israel himself. And because you make the point that he wasn't, he'd been a shepherd, he'd been a prince of Egypt, he'd been in another. And Midian, he, he didn't, he didn't, and the people were difficult and and always questioning him. And at this point, he wheedles for them, he pleads for them, he begs for them, he uses logic and he uses a sort of a case, a case or a profit and loss to God. He says, you know, if you give up on these people, why did you take me? What, what is the whole point of this enterprise that it just makes all of us look bad if you give up on it? It's very, it's very, the way you relate that is is really very, very moving in the book. Well,
0: this was, a, this is again a discovery. I mean, uh, Moses was a reluctant uh, messenger for God. He tried to get out of the job. Um, he, um, he, he finds these people impossible. I mean, they're murmuring at him almost immediately after he get, they get him out of Egypt. Um, they threatened to stone him. And um, he complains to God, what am I gonna do with these people? And Moses, you know, he's up there 40 days and 40 nights he likes being with God. It doesn't take 40 days and 40 nights to uh, get the instructions. You can get them in about 20 minutes by reading those chapters aloud. Uh, but um, I think Moses and God are reacting, are are, re, are relating to each other on the plane of intellect. Um, and uh, Moses has, and, and a sign that Moses is primarily uh, uh, a kind of, Philosophical soul is he doesn't eat or drink. He's in a way forgetful of his entire body during the time that he's in the presence of God.
1: And he forgets his family too. You make that fascinating point that he really is is not a particularly devoted, doting father or husband that we see anyway.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Moses, in a way, has to be brought uh, not only to do the right thing on behalf of the people but to somehow join them and embrace them and um, make them his own. And uh, the conversation in which Moses is brilliantly the people's lawyer and talks God down from wanting to destroy them to even agreeing to go with them is i I'm inclined to think it's um, God's ploy to um, get Moses, in fact, You're gonna plead for them, Moses. I'm gonna yield, but now they're yours. In other words, we're gonna get you to the point that you have to own up to being one of them. And by the way, when Moses comes down the mountain and sees the golden calf, Moses himself smashes the tablets. And um, you could say he does it in anger. You can say he's annoyed with how they've embarrassed him in his absence. But you can also say Moses, like the glorious leader that he turns out to be, having just pleaded for them successfully against destruction, he, they've broken the covenant by an act of idolatry. He literally breaks the covenant by smashing the tablets and joins them in their sin, making himself somehow one of them. It's what a great general will do with his people because he's going to own up to his own part in their um, in, in in their turpitude, um, and it's it and it's at that point that Moses really takes command. Some of it's quite ugly. Uh, the kind of purging uh, through bloodshed is painful to watch, um, but it seems somehow to be necessary, uh, and the end result is a kind of through this little mini civil war, a kind of reconfiguration of the polity. And then when Moses goes back up after this and he comes back down with the new tablets and the people are contrite and they're ready and eager to build the tabernacle, Moses comes down with God's light shining from his face in a way, bringing the divine encounter, not just as a privileged uh, uh, opportunity for Moses on high. But Moses himself brings the the, the vestige, the, the illumination from the divine encounter into the community. The people then build the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, the cloud and the fire descend on the tabernacle. And the impression is, and I don't pretend to know what it means, but the impression is that there is some kind of dwelling presence of the divine in the midst of this people and they will not be the same again and wherever they pack up and go this tabernacle unlike solomon's temple is portable they take it down they always have to put it up so they you know there's a cooperative project always if they build it he will come
1: well with that dramatic note and the the image of hope and mobility so we're in a time where people are moving around the country in search of safety that is a very heartening note to think about that you can have the tabernacle can come with you and the faith you need to get you through something is portable as well and i just want to thank you very much and i want to urge listeners to to read this book i i wish i'd read it when i was not 57 but in my teens or, or early in life because it's it's a magnificent magnificent book so, thank you very much, Leon and Dr. Cass. Dr. Cass, that is. I will uh, say, say very much thank you, listeners. And thank you again. We've been talking to Leon Cass, author of Founding God's Nation, Reading Exodus. And thank you, listeners. And thanks, everyone. Bye bye.